Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to join us today on Lessons in Life. I'm excited to announce our first guest. It's a huge privilege. She is a well-known, well-loved broadcaster and host of Woman's Hour for the last 33 years. It's Dame Jenny Murray. In the interest of honesty and transparency, I must confess this isn't the first time that Jenny and I have spent time together. I think that's fair to say, isn't it, Jenny? I I think I would call myself your other mother, (laughs) frankly. (laughs) Um, When did we first meet? Let me think. I I think you and Edward, my older boy, were two. Uh, I think you first met at play school. And then you went to the same nursery, the same infant school, the same primary. I mean, the, you know, the one above infants, whatever they call it these days. Uh, and you were just the best mates. And you had the most amazing and wonderful, massive curly hair. And <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't you, say the same anymore. No, you've Cut a lot of I've replaced what's on my head uh, and then growing it on my face. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were just the, the best of friends and, and uh, on the whole, an absolute pleasure to be with. I mean, you were scamped at times. And there was one point, I think, at which you had actually been sitting next to each other in the classroom. And there was some debate as to whether you should continue to be sitting together in the same classroom. Um, and you got a little bit separated because I don't think either of you was really getting on with any work. You were just chattering. Um, but the friendship just lasted and lasted and continues. And uh, my only jealousy that I suffer from is that the first baby I saw my son holding in his arms was yours. Yeah, she was uh, meeting Uncle Ed for the first time. And he looked so content with her and and I thought, oh, maybe. That was how many years ago? Uh, three. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm still jealous. <laughs> well, uh, my recollection is a little bit different to yours. I think we were actually moved classes, not seats. But Ed's <laughs> one of those people, you know, I could not see him for, for years and then we can just pick up, for better or for worse, just where we left off. But there, But there are friendships like those. I mean, I've got... Uh, a friendship with someone I met in my first year at, at senior school, Linda, who went off and, and married a Frenchman and now lives in Strasbourg. And when her daughter got married three years ago, she said, oh, Jenny, you've got to come over for the for the wedding. And, you know, I got on a plane and I flew to Strasbourg. And exactly the same, the minute we saw each other, we were just 11 again, you know. And, and the most amazing thing about her is that she had kept all her school books and I hadn't kept all of mine. And we sat in her flat looking through all the, the school books, remembering all the exercises we'd had to do and me remembering how much better her handwriting was than mine and how much better she was at maths. But there you go. Yes, well, I mean, I've just got rid of all mine. We, we had a massive store in our loft and we, we've been clearing it out. And I have to say, I mean, it was nice to look through it and, and think, well, maybe I did actually more work than I remembered because uh, I always thought of myself quite lazy at school. Uh, but other than that, it really just clogs up the place and then you have to get rid of it at some point. 
I know. I'm I'm going through a lot of that at the moment, trying to get rid of stuff. Yeah, it's it's, it's not easy. Hard. Um, I want to go back to uh, when we were little because I always knew that you were in broadcasting and I know that you had a job uh, for which you were well known and well recognised. But I, I never quite understood the magnitude of, of what you were doing on Woman's Hour. I mean, while you were interviewing Edwina Curry on smear tests or <laughs> speaking to Monica Lewinsky about that stain on the dress. Oh, yes. <laughs> Ed and I were busy running around your Broomwood Road house sticking breadsticks up our nose chanting we're rugger buggers over and over again yes i think you probably were Uh, i try it's interesting you know a parent tries to wipe all those horrors out of their mind but uh, when you remind me yes you were i remember the rugger buggers thing in (laughs) fact i think my husband david organized a rugby party for you at one stage yeah my 10th a birthday party that was all to do with rugby, and uh, yeah, yeah, you were you were Well, I know my mum was uh, really thankful for uh, for Dave helping us out on that one. Well, he was a big fan of rugby, as indeed was Charlie. I think Ed not so much a fan of rugby. I remember when he got into the sixth form, um, he liked riding. You know, he and I used to go riding together, and. Um, his biology teacher, who was, you know, he had to do well in biology to, to study veterinary science. And um, the biology teacher was also the coach for the rugby team. And he said, look, I'll, I'll give you a hand with, with your biology. Um, and I will put on your UCAS form that you have been a member of the rugby squad if you'll agree to at least come to training, he said, you've got to have some sport on you, you catch sport. Um, and I promise I'll never select you for the team. Oh. <laughs> so he was very relieved about that. He was not a keen rugby player, whereas his brother was desperately keen and, of course, became captain of rugby. But, you know, you have two kids. They're both boys. They're very different. Yes, well, I imagine there's a lot of energy to burn off yeah. as well. Yeah, letting them... Run it off is the way to do it. Yeah, well, uh, I've always felt slightly embarrassed, actually, that I, I didn't know more about your background and your history. I suppose when you're, when you're children, you, you don't really think to dig below the surface. You know, you were Ed's mum. And, uh, and, you know, when I came to see you up north, it was great to have the horses there and we would go out. And when we are in London, we'd go to the theatre or we'll go for lovely meals in lovely restaurants and so on. And I've really enjoyed recently re-listening to your new book fat cow fat chance and i mean i i've always known you to be very candid but this book is incredibly honest it is i mean some people say oh my goodness that's a very strong title fat cow fat chant um and i have to explain it right at the beginning that i did have weight problems you know not when i was a kid um but it first happened when I went to university, which is not uncommon for a lot of people. They yeah. eat all the wrong food. They start to drink alcohol, which they've never done before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went from nine and a half to 11 and a half stone in, in the first year at university, which was pretty disastrous. Um, and then I've had a whole lifetime, really, of dieting, putting weight back on, dieting, putting weight back on. But the fat cow thing is... and. Um, I'm sure this applies to every woman who's ever suffered from obesity as I did. 
you're walking through the park, you're sitting in your mini, you come up to the lights and some bloke, and it's always a bloke, I'm afraid, pulls up alongside you, leans out of his window and says something like, fat cow, wouldn't go there, would you? Bloody hell. Over and over and over again. And so many other women have said exactly the same thing. And it just outraged me. And then when I started to get involved in learning about the science of dieting and why some people get terribly fat and others don't, you know, it's not as simple as energy in, energy out. You know, you eat less, you do more exercise. It's just not as simple as that. It's much more complicated. Um, well, when I started working on it, I, I got involved in a conference and there are a whole lot of us sitting there. Quite a lot of us had either been a, or obese or were obese. Others were doctors and people who worked in, in the field. And one young guy got up and he was, I called them metabolic surgeons, not bariatric surgeons. Metabolic is a much more accurate description of the, right. the surgeons who work on operations to try and help you lose weight. Uh-huh. And he got up, he was Irish, and he said, um, isn't it interesting? He said, you know, we have something called hate speech. And a lot of things are included in hate speech. So you're considered to have broken the law if you call somebody out on their disability, their sex, their gender. He listed all these things off, and it's quite a long list. And then he stopped and he said, has anybody noticed what's missing from that list? And this whole audience kind of breathed and went, oh, my goodness, obesity. And, of course, you know, I do get worried sometimes that too much is considered hate speech. You know, are we actually allowed to make a joke about anything anymore? I suspect not, especially when they start to suggest things that are said around your family dinner table could yes. become hate speech, which would be disastrous in my family, I yeah, suspect. Um, but, but the idea that people should be made aware that there are certain things that, if you say, you can really damage somebody. Mm. And the, the best evidence I got from that was from a, a very impressive American psychology professor who's worked for years and years and years on the impact on children and young people of being the fatty in the class where, you know, their academic work suffers, um, their friendships suffer. And of course their sport suffers because nobody ever chooses the fat kid to be in the football team or the netball team or any of that. And it's deeply, deeply damaging. And I remember James Corden saying at one stage when, I don't know, one of the journalists here, probably Piers Morgan, had said something like, oh, God, you know, it's easy to lose weight. Um, you know, all these fatties, they, they should just eat less and exercise more. And I remember James Corden in his um, programme in America having a little sign behind him saying, um, you know, if, if it was easy to lose weight, there'd be no fat kids in school. And just saying, you know, you really cannot do this to children. It's cruel. Well, it's cruel to everybody. And I suffered a lot from it. Yeah. Well, I think there's something about um, about fat that people think you've done it to yourself and therefore you can undo it. 
Whereas with something genetic like race or gender or colour of your hair or what have you, I think as that's seen as something you can't change, it somehow seems worse to insult it. But you see, obesity is to some degree genetically ordained. You know, I had two grandmothers who were both as round as they were long. And they didn't care, you know, they just said, oh, we don't care if we're fat, we're fat and happy and, and all of that. And when I started to research what was going on here, the genetic question is really quite an important one because the real powerful geneticists who are doing a lot of work on this in Cambridge are, are finding that if you look back in people's history, where there are a lot of fat people, it's often because their ancestors have lived in an area where there was real starvation. Very difficult to get any access to food. And of course, the people who survived were the ones who were able to retain what, what little they could eat. And so a whole genetic thing developed so I suspect I come somewhere from ancestors who were starving at one point, but managed to survive and retain their fat, because I found it very, very easy to retain my fat. The other thing, you know, that people often don't understand is that the reason I say metabolic surgery is the right word for the, for the surgery that I eventually had. Um, the metabolism has such a powerful role. There are little hormones all running around your body, affecting your appetite. You know, there's, there's one little gang in the part of my stomach that has now been removed, thank goodness. Um, and it's called ghrelins, and it's the hunger hormone. And when you're starting to get near to mealtime, it's going, ooh, 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 hungry, 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 hungry. So I still, after the surgery, still get peckish from time to time, but I never suffer from that burning hunger that I used to get and would just stuff my face. Um, and then there's another one called leptin. And the leptin is very significant if you're the sort of person who diets, which, you know, I did. I, I When I put weight on at university, uh, I was <laughs> diagnosed um, as needing amphetamines. Um, to help me lose weight by some crackpot of a doctor at, at the university. And I lost a vast amount of weight. I mean, I went from 11 and a half to just over seven stone, which was ridiculous and dangerous. Um, and I had, during that period, gone on the craziest diet I ever went on, which I read about in some women's magazine in the what, late 60s, early 70s. Um, that you should eat nothing but a boiled egg and a tomato. And the boiled egg and the tomato should be on the same plate. And that's what I did. I did it for about six months, and that's when I lost all that weight. I can now eat a boiled egg. I can also eat a tomato. If I were to see a boiled egg and a tomato on the same plate, I would be ill, <laughs> really seriously ill. Ugh what I did I don't know it was awful but you know other things I did I did the Ducan diet I did you know all the fashionable diets that came from America the cabbage soup diet and what what happens when you diet like that is yes you, you lose a lot of weight because you're very strict with yourself 
and you try to get as much exercise as you can. And I used to do yoga and all ride horses and all kinds of things. And then you come to a point where you think, oh, yeah, I've lost a lot of weight. I'm okay now. I, I can ease up, you know. I, and your kids are saying, oh, mom, you'll be all right with a bit of treacle sponge pudding, you know, don't worry about it. And then you realize that the leptin is kicking in. And the leptin, when you've lost lots and lots of weight, it shoots up to your brain and it says to your brain, oh, quick, quick, she's starving. She's starving. She's going to die. Make her eat. Make her eat. And that's what causes that phenomenal appetite that you get when you've been on a really strict diet and you've lost lots and lots of weight. And what happens then is you put on even more weight than you had when you started to lose it. It's such a complicated business. Well, how does one go about um, not triggering those hormones? <laughs> With grave difficulty, um, except to do what I did finally. And it, the reason, I, I mean, I was 64. Uh, I had risen to 24 stones. My mobility was damaged. I'd gone through a severe period of depression when I was living in the flat I used to call Wuthering Depths when I was coming down here from the north to work in London. I rented this flat, basement flat, very depressing. Spent a lot of time on my own. You know, I'd go into work, come home, do a bit of writing, maybe go to Mark Spencer's, throw something in the microwave. I wasn't cooking properly for myself at all. And then I'd go home at the weekend and, and eat properly at home because I was cooking for the kids or my husband was cooking for the kids. Uh, but when I was on my own, I was really unhappy. I missed them. I missed really everything that I built around myself. And I know it was my choice that, you know, I still wanted to carry on doing Woman's Hour. I was going to travel up and down. The boys were going to go to the grammar school in Manchester that we really wanted them to go to. But that separation from family was really, really hard. And then when I was 64 and desperate about my weight, I was walking in the park with Charlie, the younger one. And, you know, none of my family had ever fat shamed me. It had never been horrible about it, ever. But we sat down, we were with my dogs and we sat down um, as we did quite frequently because I didn't walk very fast or very far. Oh, let's have a little sit down. We were sitting down and a woman on a disability cycle, motorcycle thing, went slowly past us and she was even bigger than I was and had two little dogs running alongside her with their leads tied onto the handlebar. And, and Charlie just looked at her and looked at me and said, Mum, you know, I'm really worried because if you don't do something about your weight, that's going to be you before long. And this was not, this was not a child saying, Mum, for God's sake, get thinner. This was a child saying, Mum, I'm really worried about your health. It sounds he's coming from a place of health exactly. rather than aesthetics. Exactly. And that's when I found out more about um, metabolic surgery, which can either be a gastric bypass or in my case with a gastric sleeve, where 80% of your stomach, the one that the bit that has the granules in it, um, is removed. And 
you know, the family were very worried about it because they felt it was a drastic thing to do. Um, but I knew I had to do something and it was the only way that I had found that would really help me lose weight. Because, you know, years and years ago, I'd, I'd read um, Susie Orbach's book, Fat is a Feminist Issue, where, you know, she says, you know, when you're eating, listen to your appetite. And when your appetite tells you it's full, stop. And I all I've said to her for years and years, you know, yeah, I tried that. But unfortunately, it was the one subject on which I was profoundly deaf. I never heard my stomach telling me to stop. Um, and I found a, a brilliant, wonderful surgeon through some people that I knew at work called Professor Francesco Rubino. Um, he's down at King's. And the people who'd recommended him said, look, he, he's the person who knows more about the research on this side of things than anybody else. And he's also probably the best surgeon. So um, I was going to try and do it on the NHS. The NHS requires you to spend a year going to how to lose weight lessons. Ha <laughs> ha. As if, you know, I didn't know quite enough about that. Thank you very much. Um, and so in the end, because my mother had always been so horrible about my weight, in fact, some of the last words she spoke to me before she died were, Jenny, don't you think it's time you went on another diet? Um, and she had left me a bit of money and the operation was going to cost £10,000. And I thought, actually, my mother would be delighted if she thought I'd use my inheritance to lose weight. So... So I did it and it was not difficult or complicated. The surgery was simply, it left me with tiny little scars because they do it keyhole. And very quickly I recovered, you know, for a little while you have to have only liquids and then pureed food and then you can start to introduce solid food again. And now I can eat anything I like, just very small quantity. So it's quite funny, actually, when the family's all together because the guys eat enormous amounts of food and happily none of them is fat. Um, and I just have a little plate with a small amount of food on it. So I try to eat a good range of food, but small portions, that's my secret now. Mm. I mean, it's such an interesting balance, though, because especially when you become a parent, there's this primal instinct to get food into your children, to make sure they're eating lots so that they can grow. And there's so much talk about it all the time, you know. Um, oh, don't they eat well? And, oh, look at that strapping young lad. Isn't he, isn't he putting away food well? Or that chubby little girl or whatever it happens to be. And there's a lot of pressure on parents to, to, to feed up their child and to make them look like a, a, a bouncing bonnie boy or girl. I mean, I guess for my generation, it's we were raised by the children of the wartime parents who had rationing. So, of course, food was scarce at the time. So you did not leave anything on the plate. You had to finish your plate. And I think that's uh, that's still being handed down to us today and something that we we probably need to break. How do you think I got to become incapable of regulating my own appetite? Mm. because, you know, these two women, my mother and my grandmother, who had 
had to give up their jobs because when you had children, you weren't allowed to work in those days as a woman. Uh, you were expected to be a good wife and mother and stay home, do all the washing, ironing, cleaning, shopping, cooking. And for two educated women, you know, that was just boring. I, I know they were on the whole bored out of their minds. Mm. And the only really creative thing that they enjoyed that was part of their job was to produce wonderful food, yeah. which they did. Mm. You know, my mother's chocolate cakes were to die for. My <laughs> grandmother's Yorkshire puddings rose up the pan like nothing you've ever seen in your life before. They were just fabulous. But the thing was, you you because they put so much effort into the shopping, the preparation, getting everything that was healthy, and of course the sugar that they hadn't had during the war, the butter that they hadn't had during the war, the flour that they hadn't been able to get during the war. That's where they put all that creativity and their love because feeding their family was how they expressed their love. Mm. And so I'd be sitting there with a huge plate of food and I'd get halfway through it and I'd say, Mom, you know, I really don't think I can manage anymore. I'm full. Eat everything on that plate. I spent all morning cooking that for you. I, you know, I've done my best and what are you going to do? Just waste it? Because, of course, they also couldn't bear to waste food. Yeah. So th that's something I have learned in my 60s, that it's okay to waste food. You know, sometimes I do put a little bit too much on my very little plate. And I think, actually, no, I'm full. I've had enough. I don't have to eat it. Having dogs is very useful in that aspect <laughs> because <laughs> dogs... Well, I don't know if you remember William and Mary from yeah, years yeah. ago when you were little, Neither. and they always sat round us at the at the dinner table, yeah. waiting <laughs> for something to drop. Well, I've I've got three now who are always uh, very pleased to see anything that I've that I've left. But that's what it, that that's what I think we have to do with children, and I hope I did it with mine. I mean, they both love food. They both love to cook. They produce wonderful meal, meals, but they're not fat i don't think they have any kind of neurosis about food which i've had pretty much all my life um and so what, what i say to parents is you know cook, cook your kids cook it don't buy it all from cheapo sorry mcdonald's or any of the you know mcdonald's once every five years is probably okay for a treat but for goodness sake lay off it you know buy fresh healthy stuff cook it well for them, make it interesting. And when they look as if they've had enough, just say, okay, fine, and take it away. They don't have to eat it. Hmm. Uh, and what would you say to a parent who's worried about their child being overweight? Mm. It, dep it depends what you mean by overweight. You know, if a child becomes as severely obese as I did, there could be a metabolic problem going on. Um, they could just have been fed vast quantities of the wrong kind of food. Um, and then if a child is genuinely obese, I would say see a doctor and do something about it. Because I know of young surgeons, particularly at, at University College Hospital, who are doing the kind of surgery that I had on 13 and 14 year old kids. Uh, and that is tragic. But, you know, quite often if a kid is 
it just gets a bit plump because actually I don't, I don't know if Ed's going to ever hear this. I kind of hope not. But there were times when Manchester Grammar School started weighing kids to see whether, you know, they were at the right weight for their. And we actually got a letter at one point saying Ed was overweight. So I went storming in to see the high master and said, look, you know, I know my child. And the way Ed used to grow was get a bit plump and then shoot up about four inches. And I said, you know, I don't worry about it if he's a little bit plump and then he gets that little bit taller and he is a perfectly healthy size and weight. So a little bit of a chubby child, I wouldn't worry about, you know, if you've, if you've got a 14 year old who's heading for 15, 16, 17 stone, worry about it and take them to the doctor. But don't, don't make, you know, what, what really worries me is, I mean, boys have as many problems about these kind of things as girls do now. Um, but I still think the girls actually, it tips over the edge for them because, you know, they look on Instagram, they see all these uh, doctored photos of women who look impossibly thin. And, oh, I want to look like that. Oh, my lips done and, you know, the whole, my false eyelashes and, and the whole thing. And, and they become obsessed with the way that they look. And I think the worst thing parents can do to them is make the way that they look central to the way the relationship works because that's kind of what happened to me you know my mother went on and on and on and on and on about whether I was slim I never walked through my mother's door without her either saying oh my god you've put on weight or oh you're a bit thin aren't you you know and that just is a terrible thing to do to girls or boys just tell them they look great and let them balance it out for themselves. Yeah, where do you think that came from? Because uh, I read in your book that, um, you know, that the corridors had to be immaculately swept and the, the front step had to be impeccable and that everything had to be just so. Do you, do you think it was worrying about other people's opinion or do you think it was more intrinsically motivated? I, I think, you know, she was... My mother was a bit of a snob. You know, working class family, living in a mining village. Her mother came from the Yorkshire Moors. They had a farm. They had a pub. She fell in love with an incredibly handsome young Welsh immigrant to Yorkshire. I mean, he'd grown up in the um, in the Welsh northern mines and you know his whole family had been miners and when the the Welsh mines started dry up they they went up to Yorkshire but he was um a winder he was not a miner so he was he was a little bit of a peg up in the social strata um and uh, you know my mother went to school in the village and she would tell me stories of she always had an apple for um, playtime and kids would stand around her begging her to give them the coke as we called it in Yorkshire what's the proper word for it the core yeah we called it the coke um, 
And E. Willie, can I have your Coke? They, they would say to her. And she said she was the only child in that school who had a pair of shoes. That's the poverty that she grew up in. Um, and so that idea of being, yes, working class, but respectable working class and everything being clean, everything being tidy. My grandfather grew, I mean, his whole garden was just full of vegetables and strawberries and fruits and everything. Um, they were really independent and respectable. And that that's the way she looked at me. Oh, you know, and I was her only child. She wanted me to be perfect. Unfortunately, I wasn't. <laughs> and who can claim that one? I mean, I'd like to see it. Yeah, exactly. 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 Well, one of the things that uh, surprised me about listening to your book was uh, that you grew up in Barnsley. And the first thing you think is, where's the accent? Oh, she sounds so posh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, where where was that accent um, generated from? I mean, was it from years of working at the BBC? No, my mother sent me for elocution lessons when I was four. Oh, so were you, did you have to be bilingual, if you like, to stop you getting bullied at yeah. school? Yeah, I yeah she when when I was born we lived with my grandparents because you know my dad was an electrician he worked in a television repair shop um didn't earn anything at all so they lived with my grandparents I think I think I was three when we finally moved out because a council estate was built in the fields behind my grandparents house and my parents managed to get one of the first ones, 14 Allendale, it was called. Um, and that's where I spent my childhood until I was 10. And, you know, there were some pretty rough kids around. Um, some of them were lovely. Um, John Lewis, who was my next door neighbour, not that one. Not um, that one. No, unfortunately, not that one, because he always said he wanted to marry me, but there you go. <laughs> um, he was the wrong John Lewis. Um, he was lovely, and we were great friends. But, you know, some of the kids in the street were, were really quite rough, and you'd hear, hey, bloody hell, they're not doing that. And, and my mother would say, I don't want to hear you talking like that you're going to go for education lessons and actually look at the favor she did me yeah. you know when i joined the bbc in 1973 they would not have looked at somebody with a broad yorkshire accent they would now and absolutely fairly they would not but then i would not have stood a chance so that's why i talk posh darling yeah oh yes absolutely <laughs> i mean for folk like me who've grown up in in a city uh environments uh, the idea of an estate is high rises, but it's it's a bit different up north. No, these it? were these were little. They were they were lovely. Actually, they were little houses, um, and they had big gardens, um, and everybody could play out in the street. You know, all the kids played out in the street. Um, we had sledges when the snow came, and we had roller skates, and we had a great time. But my mother was very worried about the quality of my speech oh, yeah well i mean i think all parents are worried about that to some degree i mean there's the the, the sort of language you need to develop to survive at school yeah and exactly. then there's a job interview yeah exactly 
So what was it that drew you to journalism? Because what's interesting in the book is that uh, you did a French and drama degree. Uh, you really wanted to do drama, but your mother thought uh, you should do a proper degree. Yes, <laughs> she wanted a proper degree that would actually be useful. Um, I think she thought I would become a teacher. A useful degree? <laughs> You're talking to somebody who's got a, uh, a music degree. Uh, yeah, no, I would. I was never very musical, so music was definitely not an option. But she really didn't. You know, she'd sent me to elocution lessons. She'd encouraged me throughout my teenage to. It wasn't just elocution; it was speech and drama. You know, and I used to do all kinds of tests, doing extracts from plays, and I loved it. I loved performing, um, and so I wanted to go to drama school and act. And she absolutely put the mockers on that one. And I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll do drama at university. There were at the time only four universities that did drama. Um, and uh, none of them did special drama. You couldn't do drama as a single subject because it wasn't taken seriously. Um, you had to do it with another subject. So I did French and drama. Um, but, you know, it was it was my mother's encouragement that made me just love to perform. I went to music festivals, doing the poetry side of it, the drama side of it. I was in all the school plays. And I also wrote a lot. The, the primary requirement, I think, for being a journalist is that you're nosy. You know, you need to poke your nose in everything and know everything that's going on. Uh, so I wrote for the school magazine and the the moment I realised that really radio was where I wanted to go was at university we had a new centre called the Gulbenkian Centre which opened at the start of my second year at university uh, and it had a wonderful complicated theatre with all the most modern things, flies and everything um, and it also had a television and a radio studio and so we had to do that as part of the course. And I went to the television studio and thought, well, this is all right, but you know, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. And then I walked into the radio studio and it sounds ridiculous, but I have never felt more at home than when I sat down in that studio and I just thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. And then I applied for the BBC because the only way you could really get in as a woman then was to become a studio manager, you know, sort of knob twiddler uh, who knew all the engineering side of things. Um, was that considered an apprenticeship sort of role where you worked your way up to the well, chair? Well, no, it was a bit more complicated than that. You did actually control, you know, the presenter would sit in the studio and you would be sitting at the control board, opening the microphones, making sure all the tapes were played in and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, you did actually need... A degree of um, technical knowledge, I, I would have been a disaster at it, frankly. Um, but I applied and I got an interview because uh, you, you see the, the boys, um, the ones who actually got onto the journalism course were always male, always Oxbridge. So a girl from Hull didn't stand a chance, you know, because I was at Hull University. And I came down and I'd, I'd phoned my dad and said, listen, I need to know everything there is to know about microphones and how radio works. So, yeah, OK, he sent me a couple of books. So coming down on the train from Hull, I was 
poring over these books and working really, really hard to impress them at this interview, um, went into the basement at number one Portland Place, uh, and there was one guy sitting there, and I was brilliant. I was absolutely fantastic. Uh, everything I'd read about microphones and potentiometers and sound and levels and all of that, I was brilliant. And then at the very end, he said, oh, by the way, where is the prime minister this morning? And I hadn't a clue because I should have been reading the newspapers on the way down on the train. And instead, I was reading my books about microphones. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm terribly sorry. Um, we're, we're not going to be able to take you on at the BBC because everyone at the BBC has to be au fait with current affairs. <laughs> so... That was an end to that. And I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do now? Because that's what I really wanted to do. And I, I needed to earn some money. So I went to um, an employment agency. And they tested me and interviewed me, obviously. And my, my typing was execrable. <laughs> my um, shorthand was non-existent. So they said, look, you know, we're not going to be able to send you out as a temp, you, you're just not good enough. But you seem to have the gift of the gown. Mm. Would you be interested in coming and working here as one of our interviewers? Right. So I jumped at it because I thought, my goodness, you know, at least I can earn some money. And I was actually quite good at it. And after about six months, they said, do you know, we're, we're looking for somebody to manage the branch in Bristol. W would you be interested in doing that? Mm. So... I went down there. I mean, it was a very peculiar way to work because you had a kind of script with which you would speak to employers who were looking for tents and the tents who were looking for employers. It was all a bit odd. And then one morning, um, a job came in to be a temporary copy taker at HTV, which, of course, is just on the, just outside Bristol. And uh, so instead of sending one of my temps, I sent my... <laughs> Oh. I sent myself, <laughs> and my typing was still execrable, but I was sitting next to a very nice woman who, who said, were you listening to Radio Bristol this morning? And I said, actually, no, I Radio 4 on. She said, oh, it's just they're, they're looking for copy takers. Why don't you apply for it if that's what you really want to do? I said, I can't do that. You know, I'm not experienced. She said, yes, you are. You've done it for two days here. Yeah. You've got experience. So I applied, and that's how I got into the BBC, as a copy taker, sitting in the newsroom with headphones on, listening to the police, phoning the fire people, just collecting news and giving that to the journalists. Mm. Um, and then I slowly got promoted to studio manager, presenter and reporter and producer. And that's how it started. I mean, that's amazing. What grit. Well, you see, that's the thing. If you get knocked back, I mean, I'm a great believer in, yeah, we all get knocked back. And there are times when everything just seems disastrous. I couldn't believe the BBC had just said no because I didn't know where the Prime Minister was. But you have to just pick yourself up and, and keep going. Just keep going. I do come from a generation... Um, as my younger son would attest, um, that doesn't 
have a lot of time for a lot of the mental health issues that are discussed now mm. because my generation nobody nobody even thought about it you know i mean my, my grandmother actually was a manic depressive mm. um and and had electroconvulsive treatment at one point um but it was always described by my mother oh you know she she's she suffers a bit with her nerves but she she's all right yeah she was actually quite serious but that was the way i was raised and so you tended just to dismiss it take, oh, well just pick yourself up get on with it and i have had to learn as i'm older to to be more patient with because life is much more stressful now even than it was when i was a child you know there's so many things for people to deal with now and i do have to be more understanding and patient but i i still sometimes have to just say jenny shut up don't say anything about or just get up and get on with it because maybe it's not good enough yeah one of the things that struck me in your book was how you describe the simple joys of growing up from the fresh food and the fresh air um you know the fact that you were playing out and then it quickly moves to london where you were working in london absolutely flat out and you know you do mention that you can go out for lunch after broadcast yeah. and after recording shows but i i speak as somebody who had lunch at their desk today or i ask from that position do you think that that life has got more difficult and busy in recent times? Oh, yeah, without question. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I remember the, the first time I came to London because I was going to work at Newsnight and I knew we had to try and find somewhere to live and Ed was a baby. And I drove through Shepherd's Bush in the days when you actually could drive through Shepherd's Bush without <laughs> landing in the worst traffic jam ever. Um, and I saw a woman trying to cross the road because there was some traffic on the road, obviously nothing like what we have now. And she was pushing her baby across the road in a buggy. And, and the, the buggy was in front of her. And I remember sitting there in my car thinking, how dare people do that? How could you risk crossing a road like that with your baby in a buggy in front of you? I don't think I can live like this. Well, you know, the traffic then was nothing compared to what it is now. The complication of getting around was nothing compared to now. The, the, there were money worries, of course there were. You know, I mean, we, were, we bought a house in London in, in the mid-80s um and and up went the interest rate which was terrifying um but it's all much harder and much more complicated now and social media does not help anybody you know there's that enormous pressure i'm i'm working with some people at the moment on a, a film for itv which is called the real full monty i know don't know <laughs> Um, uh, some of our team are ice skating, not me. Um, but um, we were sitting the other day waiting, you know, a lot of hanging about in, in television. And they were all on Instagram, on Twitter, 
they were filming each other. They were posting themselves up on Instagram. And I'm like, why are you doing this? Oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll get more followers. I, I might be able to make some money out of this. And I thought, that's so intrusive <laughs> to say to them, whatever you do, don't film me and put me on Instagram. You know, I don't want that. But I think it puts enormous pressure on young people. Oh, I want to look like a Kardashian. Well, I think even beyond the aesthetic, there's a there's a uh, this kind of concept of having it all. You know, um, it, there's no doubt that we only show what we want to show on on social media. It's a highlight reel, and what that does is puts a lot of pressure on other people to feel that they need to have all these things that other people are perceived to have. You know, yeah. the, the house, the money, the cars, the possessions, yeah. the looks, and and the and the trolls. You know, the stuff that comes back at you from jealous, nasty, horrible people. Is it worth it? No, it's not. Well, I saw uh, a, a recent uh, tweet about about you and something you said about Sean Connery recently, and there was uh, someone rather pleasant who answered you. Oh, I know. Oh, he was such a lovely man. He was so handsome. Well, I think you wrote that actually <laughs> about the man who uh, who trolled you. Oh, nice person. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, the man beat his wife up, for God's sake. Diane Gilangelo wrote about it in her autobiography. He'd beaten her up in a hotel. And he gave interviews saying he didn't think it was a problem slapping a woman if she deserved it. <laughs> I think the thing with uh, with you know social media and online stuff is that it's just so new. I mean, I grew up in the 80s uh, before there was mobile phones. And uh, I saw it span a number of generations, really, in that. And uh, I explained to the children that I teach now about the fact that we had phones, but they weren't smartphones. And we could call, but... Uh, send a text yet to press the same button a number of times to get the letter you wanted <laughs> um yeah i mean they've just grown up with it from the moment they were born the internet was there and i don't think it's helped with trolling at all you know it's 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 sort of an anonymous face behind the, behind a screen and you can say anything you like to anybody um with a cloak of anonymity i mean the fact we're always connected with a with a with our phones, we get emails and messages the whole time. It's kind of blurring the lines. So it's very easy to see how, you know, things may seem busier. Oh, busier. And you see, the other thing that the internet does for, for young people is pornography. I, I was talking actually yesterday to a, a young, well, he's not that young, he's in his early 40s. And he's gay. And he had... Is it called Grinder? I think the, the yeah. I think that's the, uh, the the gay meeting app. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, a few years ago, had used it and had had a couple of meetings. And he said now that the kind of sexual behaviour that is portrayed in these sites is terrifying. He said absolutely terrifying, and he just never uses them anymore <laughs> how come we've gone beyond the point where you would just go down to a pub or a gay bar and meet somebody and have a chat with them and maybe find you like them and it would work out he said because and he had actually seen a guy once in a gay bar sitting there on his own in the corner looking at his phone and he was looking at grinder and this friend of mine said you know i went up to him and i said what are you doing sitting in a gay bar Looking at Grinder, there's loads of blokes in here. Why don't you just go and chat to somebody? <laughs> but you know that's a huge yeah. pressure on young people, both boys and girls, whether they're gay or straight or whatever they are. 
Well, one of the things that uh, really interests me and one of the things I guess we're trying to address in this podcast series is is how someone like yourself maintains a really busy and high-profile career uh, while balancing the needs of a family. I believe you had your first son, Ed, at 33. 33. And Charlie was there. I was there. Charlie wasn't 37. I was 37. <laughs> I don't think he, Charlie's even 37 uh, now, is he? Is he 35, 34? Uh, he's, no, Ed's 37, so Charlie's 33. He's four years younger. Yeah, so he's the age now that I was when I had him. I oh, know, it's always so strange drawing those sorts of parallels, isn't it, when, uh, when you link it to where you were in your own life and where they are now. Um, I read in your book that you went back to work very early after having Ed. Actually, I think I had, I think I had two months after Ed um, because I was on a different kind of contract. I was still actually based in Southampton and they gave me what they thought was really good maternity leave. What was maternity leave like at that time? What was it that employers were offering women? I've almost forgotten. I think I got as much as the BBC was expected to provide, which was a month before and two months after, where you got a percentage of your your pay. I think you could take longer, but you didn't get any money for that. Um, and then, of course, when Charlie was born, I was a complete freelance. Um, so none of the perks or allowances that um, I'd had earlier... Uh, so I had him on the Monday and I went back to work on the Saturday. Whoa. Because I was the breadwinner, you know, what 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 can you do? And I, I, I was talking to Harriet Harman recently. Uh, in fact, she appeared on my very last programme on Woman There. And she said, you know, we were the generation who tried to make it possible for women not to have to choose between a career or a family. We wanted to have both, and we have both, on the whole, I think, done it successfully. Um, you know, it was never easy to walk out of the door to go to work when they were very little and have them clutch at your skirt, saying, Mommy, Mommy, don't go, Mommy, Mommy, don't go. Um, but when I look back on it, yes, there were times, you know, like the times I was on my own in London in Wuthering Depths when I got very miserable and I missed them dreadfully and I'm sure they miss me too. But when I look at them now, they're well-educated, really, really nice blokes. Um, maybe maybe their dad did all that because he did most of the childcare. Um but I can't beat myself up for having been away a lot of the time because I do think we had two great guys. Yeah, well, I'll certainly attest to that. But I think this is the, this is the thing, you know, I think this is the balance and it's the thing that's really hard to find. I mean, especially when you have children. Because in your 20s, you're, you're setting out your career, uh, you're working as much as you like, you can be completely selfish and single-minded. Well, maybe selfish is a, is a strong word, but uh, you can certainly completely focus on that thing. And then you have children, and then suddenly you, you realise that this person that you've brought into the world deserves the very, very best. And it's a hard balance. In hindsight, it's very easy to say, 
you know, I wished I'd taken longer or I wished things had been this way or that way. And, you know, you have to deal with what's in front of you at that time. It wasn't. And, you know, unless children are beaten, starved, you know, all the things that would be utterly unimaginable in your family or my family, they're great survivors. (laughs) They're amazing. And they're also good. You know, my two now both acknowledge that they paired up to quite frequently make our lives as miserable as they possibly could. <laughs> 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 oh, they used to wind us up, you know, and they worked as a, as a pair. There's no question about it. Um, yeah, and you could see it happening. I mean, I'd be there and I could <laughs> see them starting to bubble and I would, uh, you know, I'd screw myself away somewhere. I mean, not saying that I was... I was a goody two-shoes by any means, but then I would hear, Nessie, which is uh, what you and Dave affectionately <laughs> called me for years, and sometimes maybe not so affectionately. And down I would come, and I'd have no idea that they'd put their foot through the back of your Chesterfield. That was the worst one, the foot through the back of the Chesterfield, which we no longer have. When we moved out of the, the big house up there and, and moved down to, to the coast, that was one of the pieces of furniture that had to go because it wouldn't fit in the new house. It really grieved me when it, when it went. <laughs> it was a very significant moment that we were very, very gross. If you could, and this sort of gets to the kind of crux of what this podcast series is about, if you could go back in time and give that 33-year-old woman a piece of advice, knowing what you know now, what, what do you think it might be? If I could give myself some advice, it would be do what you really passionately wanted to do. Oh, the cat's just joined us. (laughs) That's another misbehaving creature in my house. Um, I, I can't think of any other way that I could have lived my life, you know, with that history of my grandmother and my mother and feeling in the end so sorry for them that they had never been able to follow the path that they might have wanted to follow. Um, I, I couldn't have given up the work for which I had an absolute passion. I might have thought again about moving out of London. I, I mean, again, I don't regret the boys going to Manchester Grammar School. I, they got the best education they could possibly have had. But the, it was that move that kind of separated me from the family for four days a week. And I might have tried a little harder to persuade the whole family that it was best that we stayed together. Um, but, you know, David and I thought we were doing something really important. We were making it obvious that childcare is not only women's work, which is what I was talking to Harriet Harman about, you know, that we were the generation of women who said, we don't want to have to make the decision one or the other. We want, like men, to be able to have both. And it was David in the end who said... <laughs> Look, frankly, I think the kids would benefit from one of us parents at home 
uh, how do you feel about it being me? Because I suspect it's not going to be you. And about that, he was right. And I, I honestly don't regret it. I wish we could have stayed together in London. But then again, the boys got a good school. They got a good school and they're fine men. They are fine men. And, and that just delights me every moment that I don't seem to have done them any harm. Jenny Murray, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your lessons in life. Well, thank you. Jenny Murray's book, Fat Cow, Fat Chance, is available from all retailers now. Mm-hmm.